Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Here with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, since we last recorded the podcast, uh, I have learned something about myself. Don't you know? Yep, yep, yep. Well, I uh, took myself away to a remote, undisclosed location in the woods for the week. Um, and for various reasons that we don't need to get into. And... Um, in the middle of the night, one night, I was woken up by some kind of very loud noise outside, and it took my brain a while to figure it out. Like, I'm by myself, right? I'm in this cabin in the woods, and there is nobody around, theoretically. And you know how there are times when you, like, wake bolt upright in, from some disturbance in the middle of the night? And then there are other times when your brain is like, what's going on here? <laughs> I need right. to check this out, or can I just go back to sleep? Uh, and this is one of those latter times. And so it actually sounded for all the world as if somebody was outside, like squashing beer cans or something. And my and my brain is going, I'm by myself in the woods. There's nobody outside crushing beer cans. And if there is somebody outside crushing beer cans, they probably have a hook for a hand <laughs> and, you know, wearing some kind of like long wax coat. And I don't want any of that. So I'll just go back to sleep. And anyway, so the next morning, suddenly remembering what had gone on, I got in my cup of coffee and went out and there was this there's this like the shack near the cabin and it's all locked up and it's where the sort of guy in charge of the cabin sort of puts the trash hmm. and and the reason that it's in the shack and the shack's door is locked is because there are bears around and it's to stop the bears getting the trash well apparently at least one bear decided that they really wanted the trash anyway and ripped the door off the shack and what i heard heard was then was the bear pulling the trash out of the the shack and going through it all and crushing cans and things mm. and so so here's what i learned eric okay there are some people in life you can rely on to spring to the rescue when shit goes down in the middle of the night <laughs> and then there are people like me who will apparently do everything they possibly can to sleep through it i mean i don't know what i would have done right <laughs> it wasn't my trash it was somebody else's and you know but there did remain the slight possibility in my mind that it was a hook hand psycho beer can crusher, and I did nothing about it. So there you go. <laughs> now, you uh, presumably did not see said bear at, at any point, so it, it, the bear in question could have had a hook hand as well. Could have been a hook handed bear. You wouldn't. Well, you wouldn't know. Yeah. Well, then I really should have gotten up and like. I mean, just the video alone. Yes, could have gone viral with the uh, the hook handed bear video. I'm sure. Right. Yeah, um, well, but yeah, no, that, that, that story illustrates to me quite clearly that it's a good thing you decided not to have children. You would have been useless for the 2 a.m. feedings. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this, I would have, the kids would have actually had to break into the, the whatever <laughs> like food deposit is, rip the door off and feed themselves, and I wouldn't have cared. Right, yeah. Well, at the age at which they're getting up several times a night needing food, uh, they're, 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 not, they're not capable of such things. Uh, unless see, they have a so hook hand. He shows then... what I know about being a parent. Right. There you go. Yes, see, not much. Another reason. Good job I didn't have children. Well, I have to say, I, I would be absolutely terrified uh, to discover that I'm living amongst bears. That is not a thing I would be able to handle calmly and coolly. The fact that you didn't hightail it out of town immediately tells me you handle <laughs> that sort of thing uh, better than I do. Although... I had my own scary encounter this past week that was uh, was probably much more dangerous than yours. Uh-huh. I went inside a casino in Pennsylvania on the Oof. morning it opened back up in somewhat close proximity 
to the type of people who need to be at a casino the very first moment it opens back up during a pandemic. I think it's a pretty close call. What's scarier, a bear looking for food or a crowd of pent-up slots players desperately in need of gambling? Only the best people, I'm sure. Only the finest, yes. (laughs) I'm sure the bear was wearing a mask, too, so I would have been fine. (laughs) I hope so. All right. Uh, we do actually have a bit of boxing to talk about on this podcast, believe it or not. I uh, have some minor MGM Grand bubble fights to analyze. Uh, a lot of news to cover as well. Uh, much of it centering around fights being scheduled outside that MGM bubble uh, later this summer. Uh, we are also going to have our traditional mid-year award, the halfies, which is really closer to the quarteries this year. Yes. We've only got about three full <laughs> months of boxing to consider. Um, nonetheless, we will reveal our picks for the fighter, fight, knockout, and upset of the half slash quarter year, uh, plus one new award created specially for 2020. Uh, but having spent all of 30 seconds previewing some boxing content, we're going to start with a quick segment that has nothing to do with boxing. That's right, we are. You know, ever since fights started up again in early June, we've stopped doing our Whatcha Watching segment, but uh, Showtime premiered the first episode of a new five-part docuseries on Sunday night called Outcry, and Kieran and I both watched it, so we figured we'll talk about it for a couple of minutes here, plus quickly round up some highlights of whatever else we've been watching the last few weeks. If you haven't watched the first episode of Outcry yet, there will be some spoilers here, but I can only give so many spoilers anyway because I didn't follow the real-life news story when it happened and have absolutely no idea after one hour of Outcry what the truth is. Uh, The series is about Greg Kelly, a Texas high school football star who was heading into his senior year on his way to playing on a scholarship in college, seemed to be living the dream and then was accused of sexually assaulting two four-year-old boys. The show opens with Kelly being interviewed in prison, so it's not much of a spoiler to say that before the first hour ends, he's been found guilty by a jury and sentenced to 25 years in prison without parole. From what we've seen so far, it appears to be black and white, but I have no idea which side is which. Either (laughs) Kelly is telling the truth and somehow was set up and is completely innocent, or he's a pathological liar who committed this heinous crime and has done a hell of a job sticking to his story. Uh, One episode in, I'm absolutely dying to see where this goes. I love a good true crime mystery, and this is definitely in the vein of Making a Murderer or, or Serial Season 1, except with those... Even if you came away thinking the guy was innocent, he seemed to have a certain measure of darkness. Uh, Greg Kelly, based on what I've seen so far, if he's innocent, might be a pristine person who's never done anything sketchy, never hurt anyone in any way. I have no idea, but I'm very curious to see where it goes next and, and really dug the first episode. What did you think of it, Kieran? Let's go! It's the most all-star studded challenge ever, and this time it's every competitor for themselves. Best the Challenge All-Stars. New season now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. Yeah, I mean, the, the note that I made was it was exactly the same, that have the, my main sort of takeaway after the first hour was that I really want to see the next four episodes. Um, yep. And, and I, I, I went into it with a little bit of caution. You mentioned making a, a murderer, and, and I loved that show. But at the same time, I think it was very clear from the very beginning that the filmmakers 
felt that Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey were innocent. And and they I felt that it was certainly very led in that direction. And and I always wonder with shows like this is that's what they're going to do. Mm. But like you said, we're twenty percent of the way through the show right now and I have absolutely no idea whatsoever. Right. And um it felt to me as if they were giving plenty of airtime to those who considered, you know, Greg Kelly guilty. Mm. I'm entirely dubious it's a little bit of a spoiler this but i don't think it ruins anything to say that there's this one character called jake bryden who comes out of nowhere and i'm really dubious about this yes (laughs) i'm super dubious like what is his motivation here and i feel that that's only going to be you know we've only learned a little bit about that i feel there's going to be more there uh, uh somewhere yeah it feels like the first episode very much feels like prologue um it feels as if the filmmakers don't necessarily have, have an axe to grind i mean a couple of the sort of like more fundamental points that that, that leapt out at me when watching it is you know look when it comes to you know sexual assault and abuse claims my default is to believe the victim unless there's some context or reason to be skeptical but i don't know enough about this kind of case to know that whether that's the same standard that should apply when the accuser is a four-year-old boy like on the one hand the act which the boy in question accuses Kelly of is so far outside, one would hope, my God, one would hope, a four-year-old's experience of awareness that you mm. have to feel it's highly unlikely that the kid's making it up. But on the other hand, like four-year-olds have a different concept of reality to the rest of us, right? Their brains are basically like an adult brain on LSD. So it's like, <laughs> I, I just don't know. I don't know, like, historically, whether one gives the same weight to a four-year-old accuser as one does to, say, a 28-year-old female accuser. I have absolutely no idea. So I'm kind of interested, I'm, I'm curious about that and whether that's going to hold up or what, you know, is that enough to send a person away for a quarter century or more? And the other sort of subtext here that I don't think it was mentioned, it's sort of implicit, is there's this sense of, hey, how could this guy do this? He's a good-looking, athletic, all-American football player. And you wonder... If the circumstances were the same and he were a differently pigmented non-athlete, mm. would we be hearing about this case? Right. And I don't know. Um, but I am interested. I've enjoyed the way. I really liked the way that the first hour was done. L- like yourself, I, I had not heard of the case at all. And I'm very deliberately not Googling it yes. um, until this is all done. Because uh, I'm very curious to see how it all ends up. Yeah, same here. And, and, I, and I'm curious... Uh, not just what the real story is and where it goes, but what the filmmakers do with it. Will we end up, uh, you know, with a strong feeling one way or the other? Or right. am I going to be as absolutely uncertain 50-50 on the fence at the end of five episodes as I am at the end of one? I don't know. Right. At the end of episode five, is he going to be wearing a hot mic in a bathroom going, <laughs> kill them all, of course. Right, right. <laughs> um, anyway, look, seeing as we have taken a bit of time out here to talk about non-boxing stuff we're watching, we mentioned the What Are You Watching segment that we did for low those many weeks. So let's give that a quick revisit, shall we, before we move on. So we talked about Outcry. What else have you been watching? Uh, th- there's been a lot since it's been a few weeks, but I'll just touch on uh, three quick things. First of all, like every other human being with access to Disney+, Plus, I watched Hamilton on Friday, okay. um, and I, I've had the King George tune stuck in my head all over again ever since. Uh, I did see the show on Broadway in 2018, so that was not with the original cast. So this, this was great. Uh, I, I'm glad they released it, although I'm sure I'll become sick of it soon because my wife now <laughs> has it playing on a constant loop in our bedroom. Um, next up, uh, for the first time since we started discussing the TV shows we're binging, I have one I started and quickly gave up on. Uh, oh. 
Have you checked out the High Fidelity series on Hulu? No, no. Okay, do you have an opinion on the movie High Fidelity, or have you not seen it? The latter. Okay. Uh, so I love the movie High Fidelity. It is one of my favorite movies of modern times. Uh, to, I loved it so much that I went back and read the book afterwards, and I don't read many books. Um, but So I had no interest in a reverse gender reimagining of it, which is what the series is, but it got enough good reviews that my wife and I finally broke down and gave it a shot and nah, well, watched two episodes, uh-huh. liked some elements of it. I liked the things that were new, that were not in any way taken from the movie, but every scene and line that was taken from the movie and sort of reworked and reimagined and adapted, yeah, it, it was better in the movie. You're not going to beat uh, Jack Black as Barry in that movie. Uh, it, it really made me cringe watching it. Can't do it. Just love the movie too oh, much. Wow. Uh, you, you don't mess with perfection. That's uh, that's my, my stance on the High Fidelity series. Um, and then lastly, we just started a show that is sort of my 30 Rock. My, I'm ashamed to admit I completely missed okay. this when it was on. We're finally watching Arrested Development. Oh, Uh, nice. Everyone told me at the time that it was great and I'd love it, but I just never found time. And I'm finally starting now. Only watched one episode so far, so no opinion yet. But I am uh, on the road to checking a show off my list that's been on the list for as long as I've had a list. So I feel like I'm accomplishing something. Uh, Have you you seen Arrested Development? Should you ever set foot outside of the hotel, you will be shot. Don't miss the new Showtime limited series based on the international bestseller. For the last four years, I've been a prisoner. Why are they keeping you here? Starring Emmy Award winner Ewan McGregor. This is the brave new world that you dreamt of. Be very careful. You are still a prisoner here. Everything in this new world comes at cost. This is still my country. A Gentleman in Moscow. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan. So only the um, like the first couple of seasons when it was on Fox, and then it moved to – they canceled it and moved to Hulu or something? Well, ne- I, I think Net- Netflix. Netflix. I think, it was, I think it was three seasons on regular TV, and then after right. a long break, so it I've, came back on Netflix. Yeah. So I haven't seen any of the post-break ones. Okay, so but you've seen all of the original time. three. Indeed, but that okay. would have been such a long time ago <laughs> that I could almost refresh myself on it myself. Right. So, uh, okay. yeah. I actually was looking – Again, recently at some still uh, like cast photograph and reminded myself of the quality of the cast in that show. It's just unbelievable when you look yeah. at who's in and there. I, and I was not pre- I was not prepared for Michael Sarah to be so young and, <laughs> and so young looking. I didn't. Uh, yeah, I guess I didn't realize quite uh, how how young he was when they made that show. But uh, one episode in, no no opinion yet. But uh, okay. how about you? What what have you been watching? Well, I also bailed on a show, and I, as, as we've discussed before, I don't normally bail on shows. Um, once I'm in, I fight to the very end. Uh, and it was um, a show that I think I've mentioned on here before that features a couple of our favorites. You know, it was created by Greg Daniels and stars Steve Carell. Mm-hmm. Just couldn't do space for it. I got so far, I got a fair period into it. And then, you know, if I'm bored, I'll watch the final few episodes. But I just... Couldn't do it in the end. It's a bit real, a real kind of missed opportunity there. I thought actually. Yep. Um, That's, I have. But, I didn't watch any of it, but that seems completely in line with yeah. everything I read about it. Yeah. Yeah. But going back to the, I'm ashamed that I had never watched these things, and I've done a lot of those during this whole segment. Uh-huh. Another Greg Daniels, Steve Carell uh, joint. Uh, I had never watched The Office. Oh. The, wow. uh, the U.S. Office. Okay. And um, I've seen the British version. And, um, but, you know, I wasn't quite sure whether the U.S. version would, you know, stand up straight. 
that's what she said. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and obviously there are some advantages in the US version. It's longer. Right. That's what she said. <laughs> um, but uh, seriously, I, I love it. As you can tell, clearly I'm smitten. Yes. And uh, I, I didn't imagine that, that, that Michael Scott would be any kind of match for David Brent, who is the, the Ricky Gervais version of the character. But although they're basically, they're very similar and they basically, they just need desperately for people to like and admire and be impressed by them and fail terribly at all three goals. Um, they are sufficiently different for, for them to inhabit their own worlds. I'm impressed by a way... But the fact that there is not an episode has gone by where at some point I haven't buried my face in my hands. Uh-huh. Uh, and the number of times where I've just been like, just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's uh, uh, really thoroughly enjoying it. And uh, I do like to run some episodes on Netflix and go to bed with one or two. That's, there you go. That's, well, that's what she said. <laughs> Well, that is uh, young Eli Raskin's uh, favorite series of all time. Now that he has binged enough to enough to have a legitimate list, and uh, proud Papa here, uh, he often drops a "That's what she said" into conversation, <laughs> and and will usually uh, turn and, and look for a high five from me if it's well delivered. So uh, yeah, 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 indeed. Some stick, some don't, but it's yeah. Well, that's also what she said. But anyway. <laughs> Um, let's uh, move on to something else I know we've both been watching. Let's actually make this a boxing podcast. Uh, All right. If we I must. know, I know. Uh, the top ranked fights in the MGM bubble, where once again we saw cards on Tuesday and Thursday this past week. Let's actually start with a Thursday card, um, which gave us our very first COVID postponed and rescheduled main event of this experiment as a veteran former title holder Jose Sniper Pedraza dominated. Michael Lapierre in a uh, super lightweight bout, scoring official knockdowns in the 5th and 10th to win by scores of 100 to 88, uh, 99 to 89, and 99 to 89 again. Uh, this was really a working over, actually. There just appeared mm-hmm. to be different levels here. I mean, I thought Pedraza's body language was just entirely different to Lapierre's throughout the fight. Um, you know, when they were at range, Pedraza looked like he wanted to be in closer, whereas Lapierre just looked like he wanted to keep Pedraza off him a little bit. Um, and then when they did get in closer, I just thought Pedraza was just so much more active, so much more aggressive. Um, you said last week that you were lukewarm on this fight uh did it live down to your modest expectations or maybe slightly exceed them Nah, i don't think it exceeded them this this was roughly the c minus i expected it to be just a little too much of a talent and skill gap between the two fighters for there to be much drama pedraza is still a world-class fighter i had thought maybe he was starting to slip before this but Either I was wrong or Lapierre just wasn't good enough to show it because, yeah, Lapierre had nothing to trouble Pedraza. There were only really two moments of drama in the fight. One was in round 10. Lapierre went down and was clearly running on fumes, but you could tell it meant a lot to him after all he went through to get to this fight to last the distance. Uh, and it looked iffy in that last round, but uh, but he made it to the bell, so good for him. The other moment was in the fifth. There was false drama, and it was only yeah. temporary. Uh, Lapierre appeared to knock Pedraza down with a straight shot to the body. And then Pedraza got up and knocked Lapierre down. It's a rare both guys on the floor round. Except it wasn't. Uh, Lapierre's foot was behind Pedraza's uh, as he, as he punched and tripped him at the same time. Uh, and it was interesting to watch the replay process unfold. Kenny Bayless was was outside the ring watching the monitor between mm. rounds. They saw the clear proof. It took a little longer than you'd like to see it take. Ideally, you don't want to delay the fight for more than a few seconds getting the call right. But they got the call right. Pedraza was never knocked down. I think it illustrated that. 
instant replay rules are a good thing. If yeah. if a thing that could use a little streamlining still, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, the other fight of note on the Thursday card saw the much-hyped prospect Rebese Ramirez, best known for losing his pro debut last year at a shocker against Adan Gonzalez, get his revenge and move to 4-1 by shutting Gonzalez out 60-54 to on all cards over six rounds. So let's reassess Ramirez. He didn't erase the loss. It's still on his record, but he has avenged it. He's now won four straight. How impressive did you find him to be in this fight, Kieran? And does he seem to have what it takes to go far and eventually make us completely forget his disastrous pro debut? On May 23rd... I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? <laughs> Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil, the final season. Streaming May 23rd, only on Paramount+. Plus. Ugh, man, I mean, Cuban boxers. I can... They can be so frustrating when they turn pro, and I'm fully aware that anytime you sort of say anything negative about Cuban boxes, you have to hand in your hipster boxing card. <laughs> right. um, so often, you know, they come out of the Cuban program tremendously skilled, and yet also so often with absolutely no desire to translate those skills into real excitement and entertainment. And often, they, you know, so many can can contain can carry a kind of arrogance in the ring that's frustrating. I don't have a problem with arrogance in the ring up to a point um you know watching ramirez against gonzalez in the rematch i could kind of see how he lost to him the first time there was there was too much posing there was too much grinning there was too much sticking out of the tongue too much holding the arms out wide and it almost felt like it was like a natural act for the for the kid to do and mm. i was like come on man you've won four pro fights now you need to earn the right to act like that i think um you know, look, that said, the skills are clear. He had good footwork, good positioning. He had the distance, how he liked it very often. Um, you know, he's comfortable in there. He did move forward when when he decided that he wanted to. He showed some good punch variety and output. But this feels a little bit like a rerun of good Cuban amateur turns pro that we've seen before and been burned by that a number of times. I'm going to holster my excitement for now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I sort of think uh, I, I would be surprised if he ends up being as celebrated a pro as he was an amateur based on what I've seen so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on Tuesday, we got a main event that you were looking forward to more than the Thursday one. Uh, you liked the star matchup between Alex Saucedo and Sonny Fredrickson, and it mostly delivered, although Saucedo was a little too good for Fredrickson and won by fairly lopsided scores in the end of 100 to 90, 99 to 91, and 98 to 92. Fredrickson dug in there. Despite being wobbled very early, he never stopped trying, but Saucedo's energy and output was just too much for him, I think. And Saucedo really never stopped coming. Um, I must confess, I kind of thought this might be a bit closer. I even thought Fredrickson had a shot at the mild upset. Were you given how you felt about this going in? Were you hoping for a little bit more out of him? And, and where do you, out of Fredrickson, and where do you see Saucedo, the all action fighter, going from here? Yeah, maybe I was hoping for a little more out of Fredrickson, but once I saw the matchup start to play out, I can't really fault him. He gave it all he had. He was just in over his head, like Lapierre against Pedraza, although not nearly as deep in over his head. The gap wasn't nearly as wide here. Fredrickson is a decent fighter, a fun fighter, but he's basically a showbox co-feature type guy, whereas Saucedo 
could be the B-side in a Showtime Championship boxing main right. event. Um, right. I think Saucedo at this point has to be on any list you're putting together of the most entertaining fighters in the sport. Never a dull moment with this guy. We all love the Lenny Z fight, of course. Uh, those of us on one particular side of the political fence also love him for knocking out Rod Salka in one round. Um, <laughs> he lost to Mo Hooker. That gives you a sense where his ceiling probably is. And you do have to worry about how long he'll last fighting the mm-hmm. way he does. He's 26 years old. Possible he'll only have another two or three good years fighting this way. Uh, but there are plenty of fights at 140 I'd love to see him in, including maybe Jose Sniper Pedraza. Uh, that, that's a really good test. May, maybe yeah. too stiff a test for Saucedo, uh, but I'd be curious to find out. Uh, certainly a lot, lot of options for top rank, a lot of matchups they can plug Saucedo into. On that Tuesday undercard, we got our weekly taste of COVID-related drama <laughs> as junior welterweight Josue Vargas scored a dominant win over Salvador Braseno. But the real story was what happened the night before the fight when Vargas's father and trainer got banned from the event for being spotted leaving the bubble. He said he just got careless. He left his room and wandered down to the hotel casino floor without a mask on leaving the designated tested boxing people only floor of the MGM Grand Hotel. And that's all it took. He wasn't allowed back into the bubble after that. Makes sense to me. A a lesson learned for everyone in boxing, hopefully. And fortunately, it happened with a trainer, not a fighter, so they didn't have to cancel the fight. Any issues with the strictness of this rule, Kieran? No, none whatsoever. I've actually been super impressed with the diligence um, with which everyone involved, top rank and the MGM and partners have, have approached this. Uh, they're clearly prepared to take short-term hits to make sure that this whole program goes ahead in the medium to long term and uh, that everybody's exposed as little as possible. And so far, it's it's worked for them. You know, Pedraza Lepierre had to be rescheduled and it was rescheduled. It went ahead. Everything's fine. I'm sure Michaela Mayer is going to get an opportunity again. Uh, this is absolutely the right thing to do. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm not there, so I'm not quite sure how it's set up, but I don't know how anybody who is in the bubble can make that kind of mistake. I can must assume that it's drummed into everybody who's there yeah. that this is what this this is what the deal is. Um, I just don't know how you can suddenly forget you're in the bubble or what the rules are, and you'll just wander down to the casino floor without a mask. Um, but if anything, it does seem to have motivated Vargas. You know, he lost a couple of veneers during the fight. Yes. Uh, had a touch of the Leon Spinks grin about him afterwards, but he was still a pretty comfortable victor. And, you know, it seemed to have been quite inspired a little bit and, and emotional about not having his dad around. Uh, but like you said, lesson learned by everybody there, I think. Yep. Uh, let's turn our attention briefly to this coming week's bubble fights. Uh, again, a Tuesday card and a Thursday card. Uh, and again, the theme here is reworked main events because one fighter in each fell out. But this time, on both occasions, reasons that have nothing whatsoever to do with COVID. Uh, on Tuesday, we were expecting to see Jose Chon Cepeda against Ivan Baranchik, but Baranchik suffered a training injury. So instead, it is Cepeda, who is 31 and 31-2 with 25 KOs, against Kendo Castaneda. 17 and 1 with 8 KOs. And on Thursday, we discovered last week, as we discussed, uh, that Jarrell Big Baby Miller, well, anyway, Big Baby Miller, Big Baby Miller to the whole thing. Uh, he was supposed to fight. <laughs> His name is a verb now. That's <laughs> a bad sign. 
It is. Uh, he was supposed to face Jerry Forrest, and it will now be, as we discussed with Dan Raphael last week, uh, Forrest against Carlos Takam. Eric, any thoughts on these two substitute main events? Well, I don't know a lot about Kendo Castaneda. He has a nice record. Uh, he's coming off his only loss against a fellow unbeaten, though, and it was by majority decision. He might be a good opponent for Zapata. I can't really say. Uh, I am a big fan of Zapata. Very likable guy. He was a great guest last week on Brian Campbell's State of Combat podcast. Uh, he beat Jose Pedraza last time out. Uh, He arguably deserved to win his title shot against Jose Ramirez. He's in the conversation with the very best at 140. The Baranchik matchup was more appealing on paper, but, you know, sometimes these lesser-known late subs surprise you, so we'll see. Um, As for the Thursday fight, Clearly, the fight is going to be overshadowed by talk of the guy who isn't right. fighting. Um, and that's understandable. Big Baby is this well-known personality embroiled in high-profile controversy, whereas Takam against Forrest is your garden variety fringe contender versus guy a level or two below fringe contender. Forrest is a crafty enough heavyweight, but this has lots of potential to be boring and sloppy yeah. and fairly one-sided. So, yeah. yeah. As with last week, I like the Tuesday main event. I'm lukewarm at best on the Thursday main event. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Takam might actually be a step up from Miller, really, for uh, for Forrest. I mean, certainly he's, he's faced, I think, a better caliber of opposition, although he's come up short every time he's really sort of stepped it up to right. that extra level. But, yeah, he doesn't have that X factor that, um, you know, Joel Miller carried into the ring uh, and may or perhaps may well not ever carry into the ring again. Um, so, yeah, like you said, it is more of a run-of-the-mill kind of heavyweight deal. Uh, like you said, I also don't know much about Castaneda. Looked him up a little bit. Uh, seems quite talented. He himself has sort of said that sometimes he can be his own worst enemy in the ring and the way he fights. He's apparently in the past proven to be his own worst enemy outside of the ring, getting caught for uh, uh, getting marijuana and is uh, testing positive for marijuana, which, while not exactly a performance enhancer, suggests that maybe you're not taking your career as quite as seriously as you need to. But um, other than that, I know very little about him, and uh, but we'll be interested to see him up against the Pater. Okay, well, now it is the moment you've all been waiting for, or half waiting for. Buff up your little halfies, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) It's time for the Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney Mid-Year Awards. Uh, Last Wednesday, we crossed over from June into July, which means the Tuesday MGM bubble card from last week is eligible for a halfie. The Thursday card isn't. We draw the line right in between those. Uh, and uh, as, as Kieran noted at the top of the show, weirdest halfies ever. Uh, the, the quarteries might be the, the better name, although although no word has ever rolled off the tongue worse than quarteries. So we are sticking with with halfies, I think. Uh, you definitely can't buff up a quarterie. Uh, uh, moments that you'll live in infamy. <laughs> yes. Um, all right, so let's get to it. First up, fighter of the half year. We touched on this with Dan Rayfield last week. Really no room for debate here. It has to be Tyson Fury. If you're looking for a runner-up, there's journeyman Clay Collard, who is 3-0 in 2020, all three wins coming against undefeated fighters. And there's Emmanuel Navarrete, who has fought twice already this year. And maybe if he wins three more fights and Tyson Fury doesn't fight again in 2020. There will be a case for Navarrete at the end of the year. Uh, But uh, at the midpoint, it has to be Fury for the way he dominated and stopped Deontay Wilder on February 22nd. He said he was going to take the fight to Wilder and knock him out. None of us believed him, uh, but we should have. Apparently Tyson Fury is the runaway winner of this halfie. 
Yeah, no question. I mean, I think even if everything had sort of unspooled the way it was supposed to during the first half of the year, I'm not sure that there would have been a more significant scheduled fight uh, than that one. And even if there had been, what would have been the likelihood of anybody performing in so shockingly dominant a manner in such a significant fight? Um, You know, and as we'll discuss later, Fury may well have a chance to double down on this win um, before the year is up and secure his hold on the fighter of the year consideration. But he's clearly in pole position and clearly deserves the halfy, not just because he won the biggest fight of the year so far against an opponent who nearly knocked him out the last time uh, they faced each other, but because he beat him, as you said, in an entirely different and more dominant fashion than than we expected. And so uh, odds on favorite, I would suspect, to be in this position at year's end as well. Yeah. Um, next up, a special award that we've created. Hopefully, God, hopefully for this year. Anyway. <laughs> um, we really wanted to be able to consider Joseph Parker for fighter of the half year, but we couldn't honestly do it. If there'd been even fewer fights and none of them had involved Tyson Fury, maybe we could. Right. Um, but instead we've created a, a happy just for him. Fighter of the quarantine <laughs> goes to Joseph Parker. Uh, we had Joe on our podcast a few weeks ago. If you remember, if you somehow missed that or you never been on social media or you're dead or something. A large part of the reason we had him on, I'm glad we had him on because he showed himself to be a wonderful, eloquent, really enjoyable guest, um, was because all the videos he's produced at home during quarantine, in case you missed them, he's recreated scenes from what? Love Actually, Back to the Future, Anchorman, Step Brothers, Grease, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Maybe I'm missing something. I can't remember. Um, And as we discussed with him on the podcast, the best part of all of them wasn't just the quality of the video production. It wasn't just the totally self-effacing and humorous way he approached them. It was introducing us to his wife and her fantastic deadpan <laughs> expressions. Uh, if somehow you've missed out on what we're talking about, do check out at Joe Boxer Parker on Twitter. Scroll through his feed, look at his videos. He did a tremendous amount to uh, bring some joy and humor to the boxing world during the worst and scariest parts of the lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. And you did list, I think, all of the ones that he had done up through when we had him on, or at least all the ones that I recall. But since since we last spoke about Joe, uh, he added to his film reel uh, recreations of scenes from Superbad, Napoleon Dynamite and Forrest Gump, uh, all all, all of which, unfortunately, uh, didn't feature his wife, but were still uh, quite enjoyable. Plus, I learned that he can play Bohemian Rhapsody on piano. Is there anything this man can't do? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I, I don't care what happens the rest of the year joseph parker is getting at least an honorable mention spot from me for fighter of the year 2020 yep. and he is one and oh in the boxing ring he did fight this year so it's uh that much easier to justify yep <laughs> all right back to the standard halfies next up is fight of the half year and this was a tough one because we haven't seen a great fight yet in 2020 owing in part to the fact that we've only had about three months worth of a boxing schedule i would say we haven't seen an a plus fight or even an A fight. So we have to go with an A minus fight, and that would be Morajan Akhmadaliev, W12, Daniel Roman, our fight of the half year. There were some decent runners up. Uh, Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez, KO9, Khalid Yafai was good. We considered a pair of bubble fights Joshua Franco's upset of Andrew Maloney and Adam Lopez's action packed win over Louis Correa. Plus the best Showtime fight of the year so far, Jaime Arboleda's close win in Allentown over Jason Velez. That got some consideration. But we're going with Akhmedaliev over Roman because the action was good throughout and the fight was close throughout, ending in a split decision where all three scores were 115-113. 
I tend to doubt this will hold up as the fight of the year, but I think it's the best option for fight of the half year. A very entertaining scrap between two world-class, evenly matched 122-pounders. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there. No truly great fights yet, and forgivably, you know, given the truncated schedule. But that somewhat continues the theme from 2019, if I remember. When we were looking back last year, we were like, there were no great fights. There was a huge number of very good fights. Mm -hmm. And and we were struggling to pick a classic out. But there was lots of very, very good fights to pick from. Um, And a little bit like that more Good to very good fight so far, but uh, again, there are uh, extenuating circumstances, obviously. Um, some good performances. Uh, we talked about Fury already. And I, and I think about it reflecting on it. I almost feel like Chocolatito's act outing belongs more on the great performances yeah. of the year rather than great fights, right? Because it, it was vintage Chocolatito by the end. Um, uh, but yes, uh, quality title fight this was between a guy and Danny Roman who got consideration for fighter of the year last year with his with his fight against uh, TJ Dohany uh shown himself to be a top caliber guy held on to an alphabet belt for 3 years and a young man from Uzbekistan who entered the contest just 7 and 0 but with a lot of hype from a lot of people including yours truly um looking to be the first person from his nation to hold a title belt and it was it was quality stuff uh, uh Roman was the busier he threw 728 punches good lord uh landing 150 but Ahmed Aliyev was the more accurate landing 31% of his 498 punches compared to 21% of Roman's both guys were bruised both guys were cut both guys were clearly her. Ahmed Daliev had, you know, the better combinations, the more varied output and the better hand speed. But Roman landing some very strong punches and including some great uppercuts in the middle rounds and a suitably close uh, finish and suitably close scores. A quality battle. Good first, first title win for Ahmed Daliev. But I agree with you. I suspect this will be in the honorable mentions category rather than the winner's circle, assuming that we do get some continued return to boxing as the year goes on. Yeah. All right, knockout of the half year, and a few strong contenders here, uh, including Ryan Garcia's spectacular first-round KO of Francisco Fonseca, um, and that devastating body shot KO we saw on, saw on Showtime earlier this year, uh, Shojahan Ergashev stopping Adrian Estrella also in the first round, uh, classic body shot, just leaving Estrella just in pain there on the canvas, but... The winner is light heavyweight contender Eliadir Alvarez's seventh round knockout of Michael Seals, a right cross that exploded on Seals' chin. Had him seemingly out as soon as it landed, it looks like. And it looked as if Seals kind of sort of woke up just a teeny bit when he found himself draped over the half over the bottom rope. And enough to know that he kind of, a bit like me, actually, that was how I looked when I could hear a black bear breaking <laughs> into the trash. That was a little bit like that. Like, do I go? I don't think I can get up. That was kind of like Michael Seals after Alvarez had exploded that right hand against his uh, against his head. Um, yeah, all, all three of these contenders that you listed were explosive and great in their own ways. All single shots, boom, done, over. Yep. Uh, that Ergashev body shot, that hurts oh. just to watch. Estrella, he's like quivering in pain. I'm concerned that his liver will never function properly <laughs> again. Uh, Ryan Garcia had the classic head snapping back and hitting the canvas KO, but Alvarez Seals is the best of the three. Perfect right to the jaw just before the bell. Uh, unlike fight of the half year where we don't have a contender yet that we really like for fight of the full year, uh, I think any of these three yeah. would be acceptable as KO of the year. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, our final halfy is for upset of the half year, and there have been quite a few upsets already in 2020, but this one came down to two top contenders for us. On January 18th, Jason Rosario shocked Julian J. Rock Williams in Philadelphia and took his 154-pound belt by fifth-round stoppage. And on March 7th, the final weekend before COVID started shutting down sports in the U.S., in a heavyweight bout in Brooklyn, Robert Hellenius stopped unbeaten Adam Kalnatsky in round four. Uh, Both Hellenius and Rosario were sizable underdogs, but the deciding factor here is that Kalnatsky is no great shakes, and most of us knew it. Whereas J-Rock had beaten Jarrett Hurd for a title belt in his previous fight, he was believed to be launching his career to the next level. He was highly regarded by almost everyone, and it came crashing down against Rosario, a talented fighter, but pretty much an unknown quantity before 2020. Uh, By the way, J-Rock was on our pal Al Bernstein's podcast last week. Excellent interview. I highly recommend you check that episode out if you missed it. Uh, Williams is so personable, so interesting, but personable and interesting don't win fights, and uh, that was a major upset at the hands of Rosario in January. Yeah, yeah, you said everything I think about that category that that needs to be said. Um, the, like you said, the quality of the fighter who was upset was the real deciding factor in which of these two won the award. And as you said, Williams so much better than Konachki, has achieved so much more, uh, was regarded as one of the best fighters in his division, unlike Konachki, uh, and was coming off such a big win of his own. Mm-hmm. Uh, that even though we did hum and haw a little bit and go back and forth, really there was only one real choice here, and that was uh, Rosario Williams. All right, well, let's get to the news, and there's quite a lot of it to cover this week. Uh, Several new fights announced, but let's start with the biggest fight being discussed for 2020. It's a long way from being announced, but Brad Jacobs of Top Rank has reportedly said that Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder 3, has a proposed date. They're now looking at December 19th. That's a long way off. Not a whole lot for us to say about that, but we might have something to say about a related story. Last week, Wilder's brother, Marcellus, made the claim that Deontay had a dent in his head as a result of the rematch with Fury and alleged that Fury had loaded gloves for the fight. Most amusingly, he said the dent had to have been caused by a blunt object, quote, according to the autopsy. Oof. Wow. wow. Uh, it was definitely Deontay who had the, the dent in his head, right? Not Marcellus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as far as as far as I know. Yes, that's the claim. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Fury responded, uh, called the claim bullshit and noted that Wilder trainer JD's was in the room as Fury's hands were wrapped. It's an odd claim and odd timing coming more than four months after the fight. And it's one more excuse to throw on the pile from Team Wilder. Kieran, what do you make of this allegation? Well, I'll quote Mike Tyson, who uh, was asked about Wilder and his and his sort of comments during an Instagram chat with Fat Joe recently. I know I'm not a regular <laughs> listener to Instagram chats with Fat Joe, um, uh, <laughs> but uh, Tyson was, said uh, he's feeling like he's given up. Uh, and he's sort of doing a fake quote here of Deontay Wilder. Oh, my life is over. I made 72 million so far, but my life is over. Oh, Lord. Oh, God, I want to die. To which Tyson said, grow up. Let's just keep going through this until it's really over. Now, I'm not going to say that to Deontay Wilder. I don't have the standing to talk that kind of smack to a world-class heavyweight boxer. But 
<clears throat> all of this kind of suggests he still just hasn't been able to process his defeat. He's still, mm-hmm. you know, what is it? It is four months later, as he said, he's still somewhat, he and his team thrashing around looking for excuses and explanations. And I guess on the one hand, you want a top class boxer to rebel against the notion that he can be beaten fair and square because he's got to lift himself back up psychologically to go back through it all over again. Um, you know, you don't want to see a champion become a good loser, but. All of that said, even while you protest and rationalize and deny, you also need to take that other part of your brain and dedicate it to figuring out what went wrong and work on fixing it the next time and making yourself better. And I have no idea if Deontay is doing that part. I I don't know him. And he's basically been on a media blackout um, ever since the loss. But, you know, you, you, you talked about the pile of excuses. So far, that includes... Mark Breland being his trainer, being influenced to stop the fight by the fact that he was sitting close to Andre Durrell, who was trained by Sugar Hill Stewart, who was Fury's trainer. That was an early one. Right. Um, my costume was too heavy. Is still the leader. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and now the gloves were loaded. And there's been this whole kind of weird ass internet conspiracy from people who have obviously never worn a boxing glove in their lives doing these very strange kind of freeze frames that they seem to suggest that all the padding on Fury's glove was moved back somehow. And so, you know, one the front part of the glove wasn't padded or something to, to that effect. And it's just, it is really weird. Fury beat up Deontay Wilder, and that's as far as it goes. Um, it's very, very strange, all of this. Um, you know, what Wilder and his people, as far as I know, haven't publicly acknowledged is what everyone knew going into the rematch. Even those who, like you and me, picked him to win that rematch. He's got a phenomenal right hand. He's improved greatly as a boxer. But his boxing fundamentals were very basic for a person in his position. And he'd always look vulnerable if it were possible to back him up. And Tyson Fury exploited all of those weaknesses in Deontay Wilder. That's why he lost. Mm -hmm. And he needs, and his team need to focus on those reasons for his losing not get all down these conspiracy rabbit holes. I mean, my goodness, come on, people. Yeah, still still four months later. It's one thing to be in that denial mode for a few weeks afterwards. Sure. But at, at this point, uh, and, and you know, my, my biggest gripe with Marcellus Wilder's claim is, don't you try to replace Nonito Danaire versus Fernando Montiel <laughs> yes. for most iconic dented yes. head moment in boxing? Don't you do it, Marcellus. Exactly. Um, all right, let's get to some fights coming up this summer outside the top rank bubble. Uh, starting on July 24th, the first Golden Boy DAZN card uh, post-pandemic uh, from, or mid-pandemic, I should say, yeah. from Fantasy Springs Resort in Indio, California, with no fans in attendance. It is Virgil Ortiz Jr. against Samuel Vargas. Uh, we love us some Virgil Ortiz. Uh, any early thoughts on this matchup? My early thoughts are that Virgil Ortiz is a great prospect, 15-0, and 0, 15 KOs. I'd watch him against anyone and that's good news for Golden Boy because people need the I'd watch him against anyone attitude to tune in for this particular yeah. matchup. Uh, Vargas is competent, sturdy. He might give you some rounds, but this is a little like Shakur Stevenson's return fight or Emmanuel Navarrete's return fight. Ortiz is just shaking off the rust. This is not a real fight. It's a, it's a sparring session, but I'll watch for sure. Uh, Ortiz uh, has a really good chance of proving to be a special fighter. Uh, the next card up is another DAZN show, this time with Matchroom promoting, first Matchroom US card of the pandemic. It's on August 15th, and the location has my attention, 
Tulsa, Oklahoma, a city that's been in the news of late and where the COVID outbreak has been awful, uh, although I guess that's true now of both Vegas, where the top-ranked bubble is, and parts of Southern California, where the Golden Boy Show is. Still, putting a card in Tulsa really grabbed my attention, and uh, Oklahoma is not known for having the strongest boxing commission. Uh, the fights aren't bad on paper. Julio Cesar Martinez versus McWilliams Arroyo in a flyweight title fight, and arguably the top female fighter in the world, Cecilia Brakus versus Jessica McCaskill. So, Decent fights, but uh, ooh, Tulsa. What, what do you think of the fights and the setting, Kieran? Yeah, the, loca- the the fights are pretty good indeed, but the location, yeah, it's a bit curious, isn't it? I mean, when there are crowds, I'm all in favor of fights being held all over the country. And, mm-hmm. and the, the one concern being, you sort of alluded to, ideally in places where there are good boxing commissions and you can have good officials. Um, you know, and it's something that boxing got away from for too long. There just hasn't been enough of bringing the sport to the hinterlands. But when no crowds can watch in person, I would have thought the priority would have been on picking strong commissions who can work with venues to create safe environments. And that's the great yeah. thing. You know, you mentioned you're quite right to say that, yes, you know, because partly casinos just decided to open up um, with, with no great uh, uh, protection initially. Uh, there's been a comeback in Las Vegas, among other places. But what I like about what Top Rank is doing is they and a strong commission and a strong uh, venue are working together and doing all their fights in that one area. Um, and so, so that sort of makes sense. Um, and the matchroom folks aren't stupid, obviously. And to be fair to the people in Tulsa, local health authorities have been pretty sensible about all of this. They were against the Trump rally that took place there a couple of weeks ago and were just not listened to. Um, I, I have no doubt, doubt at all that everyone involved has developed really strong protocols. But yeah, it's curious. It's just like it's interesting that it makes sense to go around the country with fights when you have crowds. When you don't have crowds, I'm not sure that it makes sense to have fights in different locations around the country. I would have thought it would make more sense to work with a venue and a commission and we'll have our fights here until everything works out. Um, you know, it makes sense for Golden Boy to be working in Southern California. It makes sense for Top Rank to be doing it shows in, in Las Vegas. Now that the Empire State has things under much better control than most other places, I would have thought it would make sense for Dazona Matchroom to do their cards there. But I'm sure they have their reasons. Um, I, I'm, I'm not trying to cast out on the professionalism or whatever of Matchroom or any of those guys, but I would have thought it would make more sense to you know, pick a location close to home, limit travel for everybody as much as possible, and, and have your fights there. So yeah. I don't know. What do I know? <laughs> <laughs> about the same as a amount as I know. Yeah, there you go. All right. Um, one more design card on the schedule. August 28th, Jorge Linares, uh, as we know, uh, as we discussed it, will not be facing Ryan Garcia. So instead, he takes on Javier Fortuna at Fantasy Springs. And uh, because Fortuna had the number one rating with an alphabet group, that group is now ordering number two to fight number three, which means that Luke Campbell versus the aforementioned uh, Ryan Garcia. Uh, Nothing's been announced on that front, but both Campbell and Garcia did welcome the fight on social media. So, Eric, is Linares Fortuna a good fight in your view? And do you think we'll see Campbell Garcia in the summer or fall? Uh, Linares Fortuna is a very good fight in my view. Uh, Both fighters in their early to mid-30s, both very athletic, very talented. With Linares, we've seen that the ceiling is higher but the basement is always just one punch or one cut away. Yeah. Uh, this is a very competitive matchup between two guys who, you know, they're not going to challenge for absolute supremacy at 135 pounds, but they're both legit top 10 guys. I like the fight a lot. 
especially compared to the rest of the pandemic boxing content we've been seeing so far. Uh, this is this is a good one. As for Campbell Garcia, also an excellent matchup. But I just wonder what's going to happen with Garcia's promotional situation. Is he going to fight for Golden Boy? Is he going to sit on the shelf for a bit as he tries to change promoters? Will he fight Campbell for slightly less than his perceived market value if they can't do it in front of an audience? I kind of think the number of factors working against it outweighs those working for it. Uh, The factors working for it are essentially just that both fighters have expressed interest on social media. Um, You know, maybe if Canelo was still a pay-per-view fighter, not a DAZN fighter, I'd say that Garcia Campbell is a co-feature to the Canelo return pay-per-view, and you don't need an in-person crowd. The pay-per-view can generate enough money, maybe, to get everyone paid. And we've heard some rumblings about DAZN trying to do a pay-per-view. I don't know. There's just a lot of complication. Ultimately, if I had to guess, I would say no Garcia Campbell in 2020. Mm. Uh, One last quick note on in-ring plans. Andrew Maloney announced last week that he had a rematch clause in his contract with Joshua Franco, and he is exercising it, uh, but no date yet for that rematch. Uh, Moving on to some sad news. Ernesto Marcel, a featherweight champion in the 70s from Panama, died Monday morning in Panama City. At age 72, cause of death was not reported. In a brief eight-year career, Marcel compiled a record of 40 wins, four losses, two draws, 23 KOs. He defeated Antonio Gomez in 1972 to win a title at 126 pounds. He made four successful defenses, the fourth a win over a young Alexis Arguello. And then Marcel retired at just 25 years of age as champion and never came back. Remarkable. Uh, Apparently, he'd had assorted health problems of late. Our condolences to the family and friends of Ernesto Marcel. Indeed. Um, But ending on a happier note, and indeed a related note, uh, speaking of former champions from Panama, uh, in fact... Talking about the only man ever to stop Ernesto Marcel, we do have some good news about Roberto Duran. Uh, He was released from hospital a few days ago. No word exactly what his COVID status is, but uh, clearly doing better uh, and well if they've sent him home. Uh, Word is they realized he was fine when after waking up following a long rest, he said, I'm so hungry I could punch a horse. (laughs) Um, He didn't really say that, did he? Word was. Bert, I heard it somewhere. Maybe something got uh, a little in the translation. Maybe he said something diff- <laughs> completely different. Uh, but seriously, very happy to hear he's doing well. Uh, Dan Rayfield gave us a couple of Hands of Stone stories last week. And all I have to add is that um, a couple of times when I was in the on-stage live weigh-in show phase of my career, uh, a couple of times when we were vamping and waiting for people to come out, uh, I had the opportunity to talk to Roberto Duran for a couple of questions. I was blown away by how this famously snarling, vicious, <laughs> mean guy had just become a very nice, kind teddy bear of a man. So uh, certainly wish uh, Roberto Duran one of the great legends of the sport well. Yeah, in that regard, personality-wise, he's very much the George Foreman of the middleweight yes. classes. Um, but uh, yeah, l- last week, uh, you'll, you'll recall, I wished for Duran to have an immune system of stone. Uh, the COVID gods apparently heard me. Hopefully, he's on his way to a full recovery. And uh, hopefully, COVID is saying no mas to Roberto yeah, Duran right go. now. Indeed, very good. All right, that will do it for another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with, we think, some big Showtime boxing news and a special guest to break it down for us. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Be safe, 
be kind and be well.